0: So last week we talked about the fact that we worship the God who is and the God who is for us. We worship the God who is and the God who is for us. Uh, This week I want to look at what genuine worship, what true worship ought to look like in your life and my life. You know, when we think about worship or we talk about church, I think especially for those who aren't in the church, we can think of pretty strange things. Maybe you you think of... uh, men in strange garb, swinging incense, or you think about uh, people holding snakes, or you think about uh, singing songs or saying thy and thee and though. There are a lot of things that we think about that really aren't necessarily directly associated with what real worship ought to be. And so when we ask ourselves, how should I approach God? How should I give God the honor that he deserves? How does he want to receive my devotion We need to look at what the Bible says about worship. And so I'm going to read out of John chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 26. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, we're going to focus in on the latter part of this story. It's the story of Jesus and the, the Samaritan woman. And maybe you're familiar with this story, but I just want to encourage us to focus in on what he has to say about true worship. So read along with me. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again, from, uh, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Or sorry, a woman of Samaria. For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Verse 10. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such pe- people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he this is the word of the lord to us let's pray father we recognize that we don't often come to you rightly in worship that we can be distracted we can be mistaken we can be confused about what true devotional worship looks like what it looks like for us to ascribe honor and praise to you in our lives and we can begin to go through the motions or look towards, towards outer aspects of, of worship without addressing our whole being, who we are, and our disposition toward you. So God, I pray that you would help us to come back uh, to the center of what worship is, to worshiping you out of the overflow of your Holy Spirit's work in our life because of the work of your Son and the reality and truth that he reveals. God, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is a long passage, and I recognize that there's a lot going on, and and a lot has been said about this interaction that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, so we're not gonna focus too much on on every single aspect of their conversation, but I do wanna highlight some things as as we begin to look at this text. First of all, We see in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus is traveling. If you look on a map, he's traveling north from Judea up through Samaria uh, into Galilee. And he's tired, he's worn out, and he's having to go through an area of uh, Samaria called Sychar, which uh, the the Jewish people did not want to interact with the Samaritan people. We see that uh, if you were to go back and look at other portions of the Bible and, and look at the history behind this, that the Jewish people viewed Samaritans as religiously and ethnically tainted and there was great animosity between the two groups. Uh, In in the past, the the Jewish people had been exiled and and the ones who were left ended up uh, joining their religion with the the, uh, foreigners who came in as well as intermarrying. And so when the Jewish people returned, they they viewed the Samaritans as as I said before religiously and ethnically tainted, and so Jesus is in this situation where he's really in the middle of this ethnically uh, uh, charged area, where the Jewish people looked down at the Samaritans, and the Samaritans likewise looked down and disagreed with the Jewish people, and he he finds himself just sitting and he's tired. You know, this is an interesting text in one part because Jesus is what tired. He's not just God. Although he is God, but he is fully human. And we see that he is wearied from his journey, as it says in, uh, in uh, verse 6. And so he stops there. In verse 7, we see that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, you need to understand that verse 6 tells us that it was the sixth hour, and John is being specific so that we understand when this is happening. It's the sixth hour. They usually started around 6 in the morning, uh, around the time when the sun would rise. And so this is about midday, noontime, and it is hot. It is hot in Samaria, and this woman is coming by herself to draw water from the well and, and take it back to her home. So there's something interesting going on here. She is. Coming alone when normally women, women would come in groups and she is coming in midday when normally people would come early in the morning when it was still a little bit cooler. And so we see that, that perhaps she's isolated, perhaps there's reasons behind and, and uh, John gives us the reasons later on why, likely why, why she comes later. She comes alone midday likely because of the shame and brokenness that will be re- revealed uh, and this, she has this conversation with Jesus that he interacts with her. He says in verse 9, I'm sorry, Jesus says in verse 7, give me a drink. He's thirsty. He's actually thirsty. And so he says, give me a drink. In verse 9, she replies, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, or a woman of Samaria? Uh, For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, John tells us. So this woman is a little taken aback that there's any sort of interaction happening on, really for two reasons. One, because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. And then two, because she's a woman and he's a man. And normally these interactions wouldn't have happened. And she's asking why. And he begins to have a discussion where he he starts to talk about water, but water symbolizes something that she doesn't really catch on to until much later. And he, instead of answering her question, he says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's is saying to you, give me a drink, you, have, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus begins this interaction with her and starts to say, I've got some water that you need. He knows that she's broken. He knows that there's sin in her life. She, he knows that, that she's been sinned against. And he's saying, if, if you really know who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for living water. You know, uh, but what's interesting is that he is not talking about physical refreshment. And we're going to find out more about that in a moment. But he's not talking about physical refreshment because her primary need is not water from the well. Her primary need is salvation. Our first and primary need is not a physical need. It's interesting that that God uses this moment, Jesus uses this moment and this woman's need for physical water as an entree, as an entrance into a conversation about her real need of eternal life, of living water. And God will sometimes use our physical circumstances and needs to highlight our spiritual needs. For this woman, Jesus used her need for water as a way of broaching the conversation on worship. Worship and in your life and in my life, and and just consider your life for a moment. Perhaps there are circumstances in your life that are not things that, that need to be avoided, but that they should be prompts for you to run to Jesus, the source of living water. Is there brokenness in your life? Are there, is there, are there money needs in your life? Are there physical needs in your life? Yes, absolutely. God is a savior and he's a holistic savior and, and he promises to take, give us healing either in this life or in the next life and he promises to provide for us. But sometimes we focus on the physical when God wants to draw our eyes up to him so that we know that he's not just a provider of our temporary needs, but he's the provider and the, the sustainer and the fixer of our big spiritual needs. What needs has God placed and allowed to be in your life so that they might draw your eyes up to him? He goes on and he talks about this living water. And he says, uh, you know, give me give me the drink. Uh, if you knew who was saying, give me the drink, that, then you would be asking him for living water. The woman, she doesn't get it. And so she goes on in verse 11 and says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you getting this living water? Now, living water was a way of referring to a stream, a moving, moving water. It was not stagnant, still water. It was moving water. That's what living water is. And so she's still thinking on this physical, uh, material level, hey, what do you mean, that, that you can provide me with. I'm the one who came with the buckets. I'm the one who came with the, the apparatus to make it possible for me to get water. What do you have to, to do? And he goes on, he's, and, he, and she says something that's that's ironic. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer is yes. Now, this is ironic because we, the audience, we know that Jesus is greater. We're able to see what's going on, but she doesn't know. And she goes on, he gave us the well, and, and she begins to talk about, about uh, Jacob. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Instead, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And and he's trying to shift the conversation and help her see that I'm not just talking about physical water, I'm talking about eternal life, life forever, fulfillment. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come and draw water So we still don't see that she's quite getting it. And so Jesus goes to the next level to shift the conversation. He broaches the conversation about her brokenness. In verse 16 it says, go and call your husband and come here. Now Jesus, because he is Jesus, he knows what's going on in her life. He knows her brokenness, he knows her situation. And so he begins this discussion and he he asks, hey, give me, or go call your woman or go call your husband (laughs) and come here. Verse 17, the woman answers him, "Uh, I have no husband. And Jesus responds, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus knows what's going on in her life. Jesus knows her brokenness, and yet he's willing to interact with her and, and really draw her to himself and offer her something that she deeply needs. Family, do you feel isolated by your sin today? Do you feel isolated because others have sinned against you? Do you feel isolated because of the brokenness in your life? You know, have you gone to the proverbial well at midday in order to avoid people? Have you avoided church because you didn't want to see those people? Have you avoided certain interactions with people because you didn't want to see them and be hurt by them? Jesus knows your brokenness. He knows your sin. He knows how how other people have sinned against you, and he is willing to enter into your world. You know, Jesus doesn't begin to have this conversation with the woman at the well in order to shame her, but the reality is until she comes to understand what her real need is, he isn't going to be able to offer her the help that she needs. And when we can come to God honestly and genuinely, then he can really begin to address the needs of our soul. Now, it's interesting that in response to this conversation, Jesus or Jesus, uh, bringing a, a light to the, the brokenness in her life, she responds and and shifts the conversation. Sir, in verse nineteen, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now some commentators think that she is trying to shift shift the conversation because she doesn't want to talk about this. Others think that she's engaging and recognize, okay, he's a prophet. He's someone who, with some wisdom. I want to talk about something that's really important. And, and the Jews and the Samaritans did argue about where proper worship was supposed to happen, whether it was supposed to be at Mount uh, Gerizim, as the Samaritans believed it, or it was supposed to be in Jerusalem, as the Jews supposed it ought to be. So she asked this question, you know, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You know, okay you're you're a man who, who has some perception you're prophetic tell me where can I go to encounter God what's the proper place for me to encounter God and this is where it gets interesting and awesome for us because sometimes we want to find the place and the location where we can encounter God we want to know okay what what conference do I need to go to? What moment do I need to be a part of? What uh, movement do I need to join myself to, to in order to uh, come in contact with God, in order to find and worship God? And, but Jesus responds in a way that's, that's kind of shocking and surprising. Jesus says to her in verse 21, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on the mountain on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" When Jesus says the hour is coming and in, in the book of John, when John says the hour is coming, he's really talking about the culmination of God's redemptive work in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hour, the timing, that, that refers to this eschatological or this end time moment where, where God's plan, which started in Genesis, I'm going to bring about redemption for Adam and Eve and all the others. And, and it, was, it was promised by Abraham, or for Abraham and it was promised to Isaac and Jacob and, and, and going on. This promise that God would would restore and would be, bring re, re, redemption, this promise is being brought to fulfillment, and that's what the language of at this hour means. So he says, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. So he shifts the conversation again, and he says, we're not going to even talk about the location. I'm not going to get into an argument about this place or that place because as you're about to find out, it's it doesn't matter. Not, not that it doesn't matter, but there's something more significant at hand. He says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So he gives some sort of credence to her question and kind of backhandedly says, you know, the Jews have it right. But he goes on and he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He says two really significant things that I want us to hone in on. First, the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers, people who worship God truly, who do so authentically, genuinely, correctly, they do so in spirit and truth. And so Jesus says, there's a way to approach God that, that is, is correct. There's a way to approach God that is true worship. And he's contrasting it with the question of, okay, is it on this mountain or on that mountain? He's saying, you know, these physical destinations aren't the primary question. The, the real question is, what is your disposition toward God in worship? And he goes and clarifies it even further in verse 24, and he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him, what, in spirit and truth. God is pure being. You know, when it says he's spirit, we're not just thinking in terms of like Casper the friendly ghost. We're not talking about spiritual in that respect, but we're saying God is spirit, so it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's that mountain or this mountain or this location or that location, but what matters is that the whole being is engaged. And beyond that, God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship him in spirit, and that's something that can only happen as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The the redemptive work that God is doing through Jesus Christ ushers in the age of the Holy Spirit who gives us new life, who indwells us, and through whom we can worship in spirit. We can worship authentically from who we are. And he says, those who worship true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And what does he mean by truth? Well, Jesus, as we see in the book of John, is the word, he's the word of truth. He is the ultimate expression of God. He's he's the picture of the father. When we look and we see Jesus at work, we see the character and nature of the father. Jesus reveals to us everything we need to know about who God is. And in so doing, he he gives us a picture of how we are to relate to God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that means that when we come to God, we need to recognize that we are worshiping from the center of who we are, and that our devotion to him, our love for him, our praise toward him ought to be informed by what was done in the work of Jesus Christ. We worship a God who is a redeemer, we worship a God who is a healer. We worship a God who is a justifier. We worship a God who is righteous. And these are all things that we see, all truths that we see from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. So she, she kind of backpedals and, and hears what he says, but, but says, you know what? I'll just wait until the Messiah comes. In verse 26 Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. The one you've been waiting for to to show you how you can engage in worship, the one you've been waiting for to bring your brokenness and bring wholeness and and healing and, and forgiveness, the one you've been waiting for to show you how you can encounter God, how you can come into the presence of God, how you can live your life in a way that honors God, how you can do what you were made to do, the one who was going to show you how to do that, I am he. Family, Jesus came to give us a picture of truth, to be truth for us, and to empower us through his life, death, and resurrection, through the forgiveness that we receive by faith in him, and through the Holy Spirit that he gives to anyone who believes so that we might be true worshipers. So what does this mean for a Monday? What does this mean for you and me? It means that our, our concerns don't necessarily primarily need to be about whether we're, we're at the right location or we're wearing the right clothes or we're saying, you know, the right version of what we need to say, but our heart needs to be engaged in such a way that we're saying, God, I recognize that you have shown me your truth in Jesus Christ, I recognize and I see that you've given me your Holy Spirit so that I might live life before you, that I might be able to walk out Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday constantly aware of your presence and constantly giving worship to you in my heart. Whether I'm singing on Sunday or I'm I'm in front of the terminal on Monday looking at an accounting spreadsheet or on Wednesday night when I'm when I'm at a restaurant, wherever I am and whatever I'm doing, I can be a true worshiper because I am worshiping you in spirit, in my, my, my own being, engaged with the Holy Spirit and in truth, recognizing all of who you are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Worship, it happens when we engage our hearts and our minds and who we are recognizing that that we do so because of the the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we look to Jesus Christ to inform, to give us understanding, to show us exactly what it looks like to to worship and honor God. And if if we do anything aside from that, we fall away from true worship. God is looking for those who will worship truly. He's looking for true worship. Worshippers, He's looking for those who will worship uh, in spirit and truth. He's looking for you and me to take our brokenness, to take our sin, to take the hurt that has come as a result of those who have sinned against us and to lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ and to be honest and genuine before him and say, God, I worship you. I, in my brokenness, I, in my weakness, I, in my sin, I worship you as my savior, as the one who is holy, as the one who is just, as the one who is merciful, as the one who is my redeemer. I worship you. I give you the honor and praise that you deserve because who you are and how you revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you that you invite us to have living water, that you invite us to have eternal life, that you've given us your Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's revealed the truth about who you are and who has sent your spirit so that we might have eternal life, that we might be able to worship in spirit and truth, that we might have our devotion to you informed by your life revealed in Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that when we put our trust in him, when we trust God, when we trust Jesus and his perfect life, uh, his obedient life and death on the cross and his resurrection, God restores us to a right relationship with him. You know, because you and I, we are sinners apart from Christ, that means that we have disobeyed God's laws. We've broken his commandments. And because of that, there is a punishment that is due to us, the punishment that we deserve. And that punishment is everlasting and terrible. But God loves us and he sent Jesus Christ to live this perfect life and to die on the cross for the sins of anyone who would put their trust in him. So if that's you, if you wanna put your trust in him today, I want you to pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magical about the prayer, but it reflects what's happening in your heart. God, I recognize that I am a sinner in need of salvation. I recognize that I cannot take away my own sin and stand right before you. And I thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins in my place in order that I might be able to stand before you in his righteousness. God, I worship you for who you are and I worship you knowing that that you love me despite all of the bad things that are in my life. God, I, I embrace you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Love you, family.